0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 196, and today's guest is Art Pappas, co-founder and CEO of Bullhorn. It's incredibly rare for a co-founder to remain a CEO at a company for as long as Art has, especially when the company's been involved in multiple financing rounds from venture capital and private equity firms, which says a lot about Art's leadership style and his ability to stay focused. A key part of this focus is being the best solution for a specific industry. In Bullhorn's case, it is building the best software to power staffing firms. One might think that being focused on what one might call a narrow industry would be a mistake, but it's this focus that has allowed the company to generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue with over 10,000 customers. The company recently announced a new strategic investment from Stone Point Capital to power the next phase of Bullhorn's growth. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the secret to his parents' achievement of raising three very successful children who are all in the tech industry, Art's foundational years where he was studying mathematics at Tufts University, and his first jobs out of college, all the details on the early days of Bullhorn and how he got started building the company with his two co-founders, how they scaled the company and worked with multiple investors successfully, advice for founders on how to integrate an acquired company into your culture, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It gives you access to advanced features for personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative functions to manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Art. All right, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, happy to be here, this is great. Well, I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be like, I guess, in my home, <laughs> I'm happy to be talking to you.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly, where so many of us pandemic, are.
1: Pandemic, pandemic, yeah. happy to be here. Exactly, a thousand
0: percent. Um, you know, just, I, Excited to talk to you because I was a longtime user of Bullhorn. I ran my own search firm for 15 years and, uh, you know, we were Bullhorn users. It was an amazing product. It did exactly what you hoped it would do. And so I'm excited to talk to you about how that started and the scale. And um, But before I get to that, I noticed some interesting dynamics as it relates to your own family. Um, one is you, your brother and your sister are have a connection to tough somehow some way and through your academic backgrounds and you're all wildly successful in the tech industry so you're a founder of bullhorn your brother Ilya is um founder of blue apron and right. your sister is a vp at salesforce so that's amazing parenting so uh, as a uh, parent of two uh high schoolers at home homeschooling right now because of the pandemic um I need some advice. So what did your parents do that was so like set everyone up for so, so much amazing success?
1: Well, um, in addition to being, you know, really loving, caring, um, wonderful parents, um, I will say, so they're both in medicine. So my, my dad is a psychiatrist, um, and my mom is a dental professor at Tufts. So hence the Tufts. Ah, okay. I mean, Got it. Um, however, uh, I would say, like, if you want your children to be executives in tech, you should ask them uh, if they're going to be doctors, like all the time. <laughs> right. My dad has a recording of me when I was five, and he loves to talk about this. Where I said, "Dad, I want to be a doctor just like you when I grow up," and um, he reminds me of that, like to this day. So, <laughs> if I told him I was quitting bullhorn to go get my uh, my MD uh, he would be so psyched. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> so that I think somehow that's propelled all of us into a field, a totally different field.
0: That's amazing. So, well, everyone's been super successful. So kudos to, uh, to your mom and dad.
1: Um, yeah, and it's we, not like we ever talked about it. It's not like we sat around and said, you know, we should all go into technology. Um, it just sort of happened, you know, it's very, my sister worked at a law firm and she ended up going to work for a software company. Um, when she left, uh, left sort of the law firm, you know, grind as an associate. And then, um, I started bullhorn. Um, yeah, I was a math major in college. I didn't, I didn't know I wanted to get into tech. Um, my brother was the only one who actually studied computer science and in, in college. And so, um, yeah. So maybe he had a plan, but my yeah, my sister and I clearly didn't. So yeah, the reason I got into tech was like my professor at, at Tufts, my senior, it was my junior year. I said, so what am I going to do with this math major? And he's like, well, you can, you can become a math professor. And I said, well, what if I don't want to become a math professor? He said, you can become an actuary. And okay, what's that? Oh, you, know, you calculate the, the likelihood that somebody a certain age is going to die in a car accident or, you know, die from hand gliding or whatever. And I said, so I can either go into a field that doesn't interest me or teach people to go into a field that doesn't interest me. I, what, like, what else can I do with this? And then fortunately, um, I sort of stumbled into a, a, uh, a job at a software company um, doing data entry. And I went from data entry to doing uh, like a little bit of, you know, Excel macro work to eventually writing SQL queries and then eventually programming while I was at Tufts. Um, so, yeah, I had no plan. It just sort of serendipitously dropped in my lap.
0: And then that, after you graduated, that was the path you chose was to, to be a software engineer, right? So what were some of the first jobs before starting Bullhorn?
1: Yeah, so I worked at this company um, which is now part of Thomson Reuters called First Call. And that was a really cool uh, company here in the Boston area. And um, they had a great culture. And I didn't know what culture was at the time. I just knew that they served beer a lot. and, um, (laughs) And it was like a fun environment. Like they had a very, everybody was upbeat and kind of excited to be there. And there was a lot of promotions. And I remember, you know, like the the group that I worked with, um, it was just a very tight group and people were close. And I, I love that. And that, that was like a really fun period of time in my life. And, um, and of course being 21, um, I thought there must be something better out there. So immediately like tried to find a different job and jump around. And I, I went to John Hancock where I lasted two weeks before I gave my notice. I was not a fit for that side, that kind of I completely missed the culture at uh, at First Call, and then um, and then from there, I went to a little company called Gamographics, which was a tiny startup. And I thought to myself, "Well, what I really need is more of a startup environment." But that turned out to have a really sort of bad culture, um, and I learned a lot about like corporate culture at that point. Like that's it was it was a very political environment. Um, people would get like they had turf wars. There were only like 15 people in the company, but there would be like turf wars about oh. like, hey, <laughs> That's I'm, I'm the marketing guy. Why did you design the buttons for the product? Mm. And like, what are you doing? Going, you doing graphic design. And I said, oh, I just thought I would do it. It would save everybody time. And I, there was a guy who got really mad at me about that. It was like <laughs> a real, like swearing and a whole, I was like, this is insane. Uh, but it was, it, you know, he was afraid for his job. So that was kind of the culture that, so it was like an early intro to me to like bad culture. And, but it, had you said, what's the problem with that company? I, I would have just said, oh, like a bunch of jerks. I don't know. Like, you know, they seem like good people, but it was ultimately like the sort of the, the uh, really probably a reflection of like how the leadership was sort of valuing people's work or recognizing people. And
0: so, what did their product do? I don't remember. Oh man, it was like,
1: uh, (laughs) it's a really good question because eventually the, the determination was that the product was like a solution in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. It was one of these, like, it was a company that had built like a print driver accelerator back in like the nineties that was hot. And they were like on the fastest growing, you know, Boston business journal, fastest growing list at one point that market went away when, when HP was like, Oh, I should just have a better print driver. Um, and so they, they kind of were casting about when I joined trying to f- do some stuff with the internet and scanning and printing and print quality measurement. And we would go to like, <laughs> I remember going with the CEO on customer calls and I had built this product that would like, you could, you could t- print something out, scan it and it would tell you if your printer was any good. And we went on to the print manufacturers and they were like, people have eyes. Like what, <laughs> what do we need this product for? Like they, they let us know when the, the print doesn't look good. Right. And I was like, that, that's so dumb. That is so true. What have I been doing the last year and a half? And now you get the sense of perhaps why the, the culture was so messed up. Um, but you know, but I like it's funny, you can pivot and you can be in search of product market fit and still have a good culture. So, um, uh-huh, which I later figured out how to do, but um, but a good lesson on talk to your customers. Well, it, it was the moment where I said maybe I should start my own company. Like, these guys don't have all the answers, like, they're MBAs. I, I don't have an MBA, but I don't, I guess, I don't need one to sort of cast about aimlessly, so I can do that. And I can try to figure out what customers want. And I, I actually probably have a pretty good sense on my own if I just think logically about what would I want if I were in their shoes.
0: And did you think that you always want to start a company someday? Was that kind of something you were no, thinking about? It just kind of happened not at all. Yeah, I
1: was, I, I was um, pretty thoroughly convinced that that was the work for MBAs and like, maybe I'll get an MBA someday, but, that was, it was like a mystery to me, how businesses worked and um, I just sort of, but I, that company, um, thankfully, they they went chapter 11 and um, they, they couldn't raise any money uh, at all, not surprisingly. Um, and um, they laid me off and they gave me uh, a, a two week severance and I had like, I don't know, a week of vacation and I thought to myself, oh, three weeks of pay I don't really have any expenses other than my rent that can last me like six weeks. I should just start a business. <laughs> like that's my funding. Um, which was so naive, right? Like mm-hmm. six weeks of, of, like your bare minimum ex- essentials expenses does not equal enough time to start a business. <laughs> but, <laughs> but once you're in it, you're in it, you know?
0: And so what did you start doing?
1: Um, so we started as a I had two co-founders, Barry Hinckley and Roger Colvin who were just fantastic guys. Barry was like so I was the tech co-founder. Barry was like the super high energy sales and marketing force and uh, and uh, Roger was was basically all things operations and finances. Um, he was he was our CFO um, for 13 years and uh, and Barry was with me for ten, and and the three of us were together for a decade. Um, so we started off as a freelance um, uh, creative uh, services exchange. So think like Upwork, um, mm-hmm. and now you know Fiverr's in that business, and right. there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of really successful businesses. We were uh, competing with elance back then which has now been rebranded upwork Mm -hmm. and um we were just both so early so um it was kind of a cool experience going around you know you could get graphic designers to want to create a portfolio on your website that they instantly got it and we had twenty thousand really good uh creative portfolios that were all digital and it was great um but we would go to corporations and say, you should like, Hey, you're an advertising agency. You use freelancers all the time. You should hire people on our platform. And they were like, what is, what are you talking about? Hire somebody off the internet? And I'm like, yeah, let me give you a demo. And, and I would go and say like, okay, do you have a, do you have the internet? Like, and that was a big, like in 1999 the answer was no. Or, Sam does and he's using his computer right now and so we can't get on there and I was it was really like a huge challenge and I had like these like air modems and I would like try to dial in from the customer site it was very hard giving demos back then it was like I mean people totally take ubiquitous internet connection for granted now but back then it was not like especially in like older companies, they were like, yeah, we have an internal network for email only, but not for browsing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that was the next question. You have the internet. Yes, for email. Um, do you have uh, Netscape? No, I don't.
0: Netscape.
1: Oh yeah. Netscape. Yeah. Most of my first demos were on Netscape. Wow. Um, so yeah. So then that didn't work out, um, to, you know, like, of course. And, um, but, but one of our investors said, Hey, you're kind of trying to be a staffing agency online. You're trying to like connect people with contract labor. I have a friend, she needs a system. You should talk to her. Mm-hmm. And I met this woman, Leslie McIntyre, and she, um, she had a staffing agency and they had grown from, uh, one office to four offices and they were servicing uh, big, um, uh, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, company. And they, they were supplying all the it talent, uh, on the Eastern seaboard for this, this, uh, I think it was Bristol Myers. And, um, and they said, look, like when we were all in one office, we would get these job orders for it contractors. And we would huddle in a conference room and talk about like, who we had available or who we had met that week or who might be able to fill the job and we would collaborate when we went multi-office it got really really difficult and we end up on these conference calls and we blast emails to each other um when we, and we have this lotus notes database but like the new york office can't see what's going on in connecticut and so i said well why don't i just build you a database on the internet and leslie said I hey, like A, is that safe, like Mm -hmm. that sounds terrifying, but B, if you could and it was safe, that would be transformative. And so that really kind of got the business, at that point we were really hungry for money and she said, I'll pay you. Um, So she said, I'll pay you $10,000 a month um, if this works. And that was like a huge sum to me. Um, Barry Roger and I could like feed ourselves off that. So, uh, So we got to work built the product, eventually it worked. And she said, you know, you should sell this to every staffing firm in the country. We all have the same problem. And so that became my business model.
0: Which, you know, again, this is 1999 still, right? So this is-
1: Yeah, this was like 2000. This was like the end of 2000, yeah.
0: Yeah, this was before terms like the cloud existed and SaaS even. It was like ASP, Application Service Providers, was like kind of a, like you could access Siebel through a like remote provider or something like that back in the- yeah,
1: to- totally. I had to I had to have a lot of conversations with customers about Siebel and why this would be better eventually. And you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't very feature rich, but you know, enterprise custom bigger customers would say, you know, I'm never going to run my data in the cloud. No way. I'm never going to put it on the internet. Never go ASP. Sell me the code. And for some reason i just had a really really firm conviction um and i think actually there was an experience at at, um at first call and i remember um they had this technology that they deployed to every single customer and it was the way that they delivered uh financial uh, news content and pdfs they would blast pdfs like to these servers that lived on the on customer sites and it was a huge problem like they couldn't upgrade the code on the you know software that was residing, and they had access and control over the code, but they couldn't. They just couldn't upgrade it. There were all sorts of problems. They had thirteen hundred sites around the country, and it was just such an enormous challenge that it became like this um, anchor. And so I said, "I'm not going to do that. I've seen the the result when you try to manage deployed code. I'm I'm going to be." on the internet, ASP, one code base or nothing. I don't want your business. And they were like, you're crazy. So all those customers now are bullhorn customers. And a lot of the CIOs who told me never, never, never are, you know, now they they say, you were right. I'm glad you didn't sell me the code. So it worked out.
0: And, and how did you like start to sell beyond that initial first customer? Like was, was it Barry that was out there just calling into staffing firms saying, hey, we're solving this problem. for Yeah. I mean, once,
1: once we did it for Leslie, I I turned to Barry and said, let's, she's got a good idea. Let's go. And he, to his credit, he went out and I think in a year and a half, he signed up like a hundred customers. Wow. Okay. It was pretty, it was pretty fascinating. Um, You know, he was a force of nature, like just fearless, able to like your classic, you know, missionary salesperson with a, passionate conviction that this was a better way mm-hmm. um I, I don't know keith maybe he pitched you at one point
0: not me so just a little bit about my history so you know i cut my teeth in recruiting at a firm called darwin partners yes and they did they had their own
1: uh c they were on lotus notes
0: no no they were on some yeah i think the original you know but then they ended up going to siebel and they spent a gazillion, you know millions of dollars customizing siebel for them which was a massive overhaul and then when i went out on my own i went to probably best buy and just bought act (laughs) and that was fine but then when i started hiring a couple people on my team i'm like this isn't gonna scale so i i was actually um, a max hire user
1: oh yeah yeah. and
0: then you acquired max hire and then that's how i became a bullhorn user got it yeah like peter blitz used to like man the customer support of uh, (laughs) max Hire. yeah right is that his last name blitz i think or peter, peter or something blitz. yeah yeah so um now an interesting point here is you know you did become like a verticalized solution right which uh from what i've gathered you know you tried to ra- you know you raised money at certain points but a lot of investors were like you know this tech for the staffing industry there's no massive opportunity here right didn't you get a lot of naysayers
1: i know right uh, i did it was it was really, really difficult to raise capital. Um, We went, so we, we basically, you know, we ran out of money twice, um, and had to go founders taking no, no salary, um, you know, barely running on fumes, getting infusions from once from our angel investors to save the day. Um, Another time from uh, GE asset management, Oh, a third time actually, we, um, we, we in the last time we, we had to sort of raise emergency capital, like survival capital was uh, 2002, October of 2002, I remember because it was my, um, I was getting married that week and we were running out of capital and- That's a little stressful. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said to my wife, I'm like, now my wife, I'm like, hey, um, we may have to go without salary for a little while. Um, not a great look on your she was like just don't tell my dad <laughs> so so she still wanted to marry me which is yeah which is awesome um, but uh, yeah we, so we we like we just couldn't get the, the vet venture capitalists in Boston, New York, San Francisco at all to believe that staffing was like you make software for the staffing industry so do you sell to corporate HR departments? No I'm talking about Third-party staffing firms like Kelly and Manpower and Adecco and Ronstadt. What's that? I've never heard of those companies. I heard of Kelly maybe, but like I don't understand why you why you don't sell to Coca-Cola and General Electric and and we said, look, like we just believe that we can be number one in this market, and that's a big, big market. And then I would come up with figures about how big it was. Nobody believed it, um, and even Keith, like. Even when we so when we were thirteen million, Highland Capital and General Catalyst believed they said, "Okay, this company got to thirteen million, like basically bootstrapped." Um, once we got to thirteen, though, I remember conversations with my investors. They were very concerned that we were going to top out at forty million. Like that was, like that was. They were like, "I just wonder if we get to forty million and we can't grow." Uh, and then when we hit 40, it was like I think 80's the cap. Um Vista equity came in. And when they invested, their investment thesis was we and we went to go look talk to all these private equity firms. Nobody got excited except Vista. And Vista said, I think we can get to 80, but we're gonna have to be crazy profitable. Like we're really gonna be squeezing at the end. And we got to 80, like no problem, kept growing. Um then it was like, well, maybe this thing tops out at 150. So we're like $300 million in revenue now. <laughs> like, it's
0: <laughs> very clear. And, he, and it's the, still a uh, massive growth opportunity. Oh,
1: so much, to oh, so much more to go do. Like yeah. I firmly believe we're on a path to a billion. Like it, it may take a while, but like this is, I don't see why we can't get there
0: but what was a visionary for you guys is there was an unmet need. Like I gave a little history of what I saw, just me, you know, big staffing firm doing Siebel mess, you know, small staffing guy, me, you know, doing act. And then, you know, just, there wasn't a clear cut winner in that category. So why not go after a category that doesn't have a viable solution?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing, the lesson for me has been that in a vertical like this, where you, you're talking about mission critical software, not like nice to have, but like mission critical software for a very specific like set of workflows um, in a highly competitive, uh, there's a few dynamics about the market we chose which make it in hindsight great. It's a highly competitive industry where the only differentiation is service. And so technology is a huge enabler of that and the off the shelf stuff just doesn't work at all. Like you can't take, you can take act if you're one person and make it work. Salesforce.com, for instance, you can kind of make it work in a very small team, but like, there's also the whole applicant tracking side of what our customers need. They need industry specific workflow and Oh, why can't you take greenhouse and Salesforce and smash them together? Well, that's an IT project and these, companies operate on razor thin margins, even at the top, 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 they don't have huge IT budgets. So you need an industry specific product. And then like even things like timekeeping, you can't just use a generic timekeeping and invoicing. Oh, why can't I just like every time an investor asks me, why don't the customers just use name like Workday, whatever the thing is, it's like, because they need something specific to staffing. Thank goodness um and so it's kept me in business and you know engaged and having a blast for the last 21 years
0: and you mentioned the back office is just a big mess for staffing companies if you're doing all contractors and some are w-2 some are 1099 and paying those people it's just it's a it's a massive undertaking especially as you continue to grow and scale
1: yeah it, it really is and it's like um it's just the for us like all, like 95% of our revenue is coming from the, the sort of the CRM and applicant tracking side of what we do, but, uh, the back office bit is we have a new product line for that and that is going to be huge. I mean, it's the fastest growing segment in the business. So it's, uh, like, that's why I have confidence. We can easily get to half a billion in revenue and, you know, and we'll just grow from there.
0: Well, something that's been interesting to follow along with the bullhorn story has been the growth and, um, you know, different partners along the way. So, you know, just recently you announced a strategic investment from Stone Point Capital, you know, you mentioned Vista Equity, and then there was Insight Venture Partners. So these are all, you know, private equity institutions that are coming in to build the company. Now, private equity, I think, has a different meaning now before. Let's say if we we're having this conversation 10 years ago, private equity was like, whoa, you know, they're going to come in and just clean house and just flip the company or something but right. private equity is very different now right so talk about the you know instead of going to raise more venture capital private equity was the vehicle that got you to where you
1: are today yeah private equity didn't really play in software it used to be like private equity people would think about like you know there's a leveraged buyout a company would come in use tons and tons of debt to buy a public company and the way that they would cover the, the, the debt would be to say, okay, let's strip costs out of the business. Um, because you know, you, you need to generate enough income to, to, you know, pay down your debt over time. And then, and then you're generating equity. The Software didn't really have any assets. So you couldn't really lever a software company up until an interesting thing happened, which is, um, the, smart private equity firms looked at these software businesses and said, look, there's a recurring revenue stream that is essentially bulletproof. That these companies with low churn have a really strong set of recurring revenue that just doesn't go away. Even if it's perpetual license or SaaS, like these recurring revenue streams are are very, very steady. And you can take that to a bank. And if you're smart, you can get the bank to view it as an asset. And so now you can raise debt. Um, and, and the difference between like I'm Nabisco and I'm like raising a bunch of debt in excess of what my balance sheet can or, or my, my income can, can, uh, can fund, these software companies have huge margins. So like you don't have to work very hard to be able to service the debt on, you know, like, okay, one, two times revenue. Like you don't really need to sweat um Whereas, like you know, a, a, a business with like gross margins of twenty percent, like how are they going to generate ten percent net income? For us, ten percent, you know, EBITDA is a, is easy. Like that, we've been ten, we've been twenty percent EBITDA positive since two thousand four or five. So, um, so it's a kind of a crazy model. And they come in and they're like, "Look, can you continue to grow your market?" And if you all we have to do is continue to grow the top line, you know, 15, 20% and the bottom line will grow 15, 20% and then we can like, we can get a 15 to 20% return or we could grow like the top, the top line and the bottom line at the same time, just a little bit. And now you get like a nice 30% IRR um, or in you know, some cases we've gotten investors like a 50% IRR Um, just, you know, market dynamics and valuations and like, and, you know, it's a great business with scale and it's, um, I, it's private equity has been awesome because people told me it was going to suck. They were like, they're going to make you squeeze and cut costs and it's going to destroy your culture. It's been the opposite. We've grown, we've invested in RD, and our culture has gotten stronger. And so, um, I've had a blast with private equity. I think. Um, I think everybody should do it. Like, it's just kind of, um, you get to do what you want to do with the business. And if you have the right partners, they support you and, and then you can do MA, which VC venture capital, you know, like that's not the VC playbook doing MA, but for us, it was hugely strategic. I mean, like really, really helpful for our growth.
0: So, and how did you figure out what acquisitions would be beneficial to continue to,
1: to grow your business? Yeah, I, usually our customers would tell us, so we would, you know, we would hear, you hear like, you hear this all the time, like you hear, you know, oh, so-and-so, this is like, so-and-so said something to Mark Benioff and he decided he had to buy that company. I, there's a version of that for almost every single acquisition we've done where, you know, um, instead of telling Mark Benioff, they're telling me, um, and so and we're not at all the same um but you know the the point being the customer will say look you you need to buy this company and the most recent one was this acquisition we did hearfish um we were partnered with hearfish our customers were using it 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 did um marketing automation and um and recruitment automation tech like so it would it would like blast emails out to uh, candidates, and it would blast emails out to clients, and it, it was very smart in the way it automated. It looked like it was coming from the recruiter. It was somewhat conversational, and there again, there are a lot of horizontal tech plays that do that, but none specific. to staffing and Herefish was was one, and our customers kept saying this company's hot. You should be looking at at Herefish, um, and so yeah, okay, we acquired Herefish, and um, it's just exploded in our, our customer base. Like customers love it and we're selling a ton of it. Um, we, just, we just sold more um, last quarter than the entire revenue of the company when we bought it. And that's like, that's our third quarter. And third quarter is usually a slow quarter. So we've owned it for three quarters. We're now, you know, basically, you know, growing it by an order of magnitude every quarter. It's like, it's pretty exciting.
0: Well I was gonna ask a question later, but I think this is timely now. So one of the things that I noticed is uh, bullhorn has been successful with acquiring companies and integrating the company into your culture. So what advice would you give to you know other founders on either getting acquired and being part of a culture or acquiring companies and making them part of yours? Yeah, good good question,
1: Keith. I um, I when we acquire a company, i I tend to say this to the employees. I say, look, You need to take some time and celebrate the culture that you had at this business. It was a great business. You got acquired because you had a great culture and because you built a great company together. Um, We wouldn't have acquired the company if we weren't interested in you, the people. Um, And we wouldn't have acquired the company if you weren't successful. So celebrate it, but also say goodbye to it because it's over like that you just joined Bullhorn. You are now a Bullhorn employee. We're not going to merge the cultures. We're not going to like, yeah, we might take some things and borrow, but you, the faster you treat it as if this is a new job and today is your first day after you're done celebrating, um, the easier it will be for you. And that took me a lot. That rap took me a while to get the courage to say, um, I used to try to say, "Oh, you know, our cultures are so similar; you'll barely notice a difference." And that that created a false expectation that the future will be like the past, and it's not. It never is. Like, you know, bigger company we do things differently. We have different processes. There's instead of one person doing fourteen jobs the jobs are very specific. People sometimes don't like that. But, but once you say to people, like the day you acquire a company is the day everybody expects change. They're like, oh, everything's gonna change. And then managers go in and tell them nothing's gonna change, but then that's not the truth. And so like six months later, everything changes and they're like, see these guys are, that you can't trust them. So,
0: so now I go
1: and I say, look, everything's gonna change. Nothing will be the same. You need to forget the past and join Bullhorn, and it's going to be great. Now, occasionally people opt out; it's very rare. Most people say, "I'll give it a shot and see what it's like," and they like it. It's a good company, you know. So, like, it, we have a good culture. We're fortunate. So, I think, like, that's the that's where I am now. And so, that's what the advice I would give anybody who is acquiring is like: just be honest about what you're really going to do with it.
0: Now you you mentioned when the company started you were the CTO, but you know eventually you moved into the CEO. I think in two thousand and three, if my yeah, year. that's right. So what what did you have to learn to lead a company? And you know you've been the CEO, you know until you know present day, which isn't all that common. As you've scaled resume, I mean uh, revenue from zero to thirteen million to a hundred plus million, right? That's sometimes requires different leadership. But how how have you you know, been able to, uh, you know, change and adapt based on the company's growth and and learn how to lead?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing for me was learning that being a CEO isn't what I thought in my mind it had to be. So um, I was pretty convinced that a CEO was a very charismatic PowerPoint toting financial guru who was able to give really long and thoughtful speeches, you know, off the cuff. Um, It turned out like that a CEO is just somebody who is capable of having a vision and uh, assembling a team that's gonna go execute. And you look at like, Bill Belichick is a pretty good example of a CEO who has absolutely no charisma, um, but executes and can assemble a team and builds a culture such that people wanna follow uh, his direction, or you know, there's so many examples of great leaders who, you know, don't have they aren't able to you know sort of give rousing speeches and things like that. They just they're just good leaders and they have vision and they know what needs to be done and they know how to break problems down such that they can so the the te- the people they have on the team are capable of executing. And so that was sort of the first first thing. And then eventually I learned how to do speeches and I've gotten better at it. But, you know, by my marketing team will tell you like I I always have a cold start. So (laughs) it's like, I have to get going. Um, you know, and it's just sort of my nature. Um, but I think, um, I think the, uh, as I've gotten deeper into the job, I think recognizing that the number one thing you have to do is team building. As opposed to like, I'm the product visionary. I was, but that doesn't scale. Or I'm the best salesperson, and I should always be in the room. Like, really, what you want is a sales team that's so good that they only need you in cases where the customer demands to meet the CEO. Right. Um, and you know, it's it's like in every single job I've I've had to hand it off and have missed a a little piece of it, but I've also really enjoyed the journey of like, okay, now it's a bigger, now I have people working for me, it's a bigger company I have people working for me who are so good at what they do and they're so talented and they're amazing leaders and I'm learning from them and we're learning from each other. And that's like, that's really rewarding for me. And so, and so I, I kind of feel like sometimes my job is just to like recognize when it's time for me to get out of the way and, and coach somebody into doing the thing that I used to do myself. Now,
0: one of the things that Bullhorn was kind of early to market with was unlimited vacation time. And what I've noticed from just, you know, doing some research on you is you practice what you preach. You're you know, uh, a balanced CEO who shuts down email when you're on vacation, if I'm correct. So, what advice would you give to founders and you know, executives around maintaining that
1: balance and you know, having that more mental health point of view? I'll say something sort of controversial. I think the there are a lot of founders who um, and executives who are truly addicted to their work and. They really love the being in the the club of like oh I'm just, it's just you know I I just work you know like crazy I'm always on you know always attached to my phone always on calls Saturday Sunday um, that's a choice I I firmly believe that I know a lot of CEOs who work like crazy and they just have no personal lives and their families have suffered for it. And I know a lot of CEOs who have balance and they're like, yeah, I work work a lot. I mean, I'm certainly like, from the moment I wake up to the moment I, you know, sort of try to switch off at after dinner and just watch TV. I'm like on thinking about work, but I'm not always doing it. Like I'll, eat dinner with my family and we'll watch TV together and we'll hang out and weekends. I don't, I try to sort of stop doing email and cleaning up my inbox at around 10 o'clock on a Saturday. And I don't, you know, I'll answer email on a weekend, but I'm not like, I try not to sit down at a computer the rest of the weekend. Like I'll do whatever I can on my phone and I try not to take calls. Like I just try to limit it and I find I get more done because I have to, I'm like, I need to finish I need to clean out my email by seven, and I need to clean out my slack and all my text messages by seven because I know we're gonna have dinner and I don't want to be doing it after dinner. And so I get a lot done, <laughs> just more more productive.
0: yeah, manage your time efficiently and uh, it is important to disengage. I think uh, you know, this has been a good year where i've I've definitely learned that where it's just like it's it's possible to kind of step away and it's still going to be there when you get back or you can delegate it, which is uh, I think another thing that people struggle with is,
1: is delegating. That's, that's, that's a good one too, for sure. Like if you're not delegating stuff, that's really, really time consuming, then, then nobody's being CEO. CEOs should have two to three hours every week where they can just sit and think about the business. If you don't, then your competition is probably thinking about how to kill you more and they'll probably be successful.
0: So I know it's hard for people to get together these days, but uh, if there was a battle of the bands across the whole country, I'm pretty sure, you know, a battle of corporate bands, I should say, like in software, pretty sure Stampede would win. Like (laughs) hands down the best tech bands, like corporate tech band out
1: there, right? Am I wrong? Uh, Well, actually, Uh, we would be runner up <laughs> because yeah. last year we did have a battle of the tech bands or it was a battle of corporate bands and uh, pega Systems um, they won.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Right. So, so um, yeah, so I mean, we're pretty good, but they're better.
0: <laughs> One of the things I always admired about, you know, when you built out your offices was the music room with the guitars and the instruments like that's jealous I need that <laughs> yeah so so I mean do you play yeah like I played you know casually after college and then you know kids kind of put it away but with COVID I picked it back up again so it's been fun to kind of get you know get the fingers
1: the fingertips a little rough again there's a there's a pretty high correlation that we kind of figured out that like a lot of people in tech and a lot of people in like the sort of the, you know, startup scene and like the entrepreneurial scene, like they they really are into music and either listening or, or playing. And um, so that's why we started, you know, okay, we're gonna start with a, a music room. It turned into a soundproof uh, studio, um, you know, and then we eventually formed a band. And now they're like, we have, um, our st louis office which is just about to open pre covid uh is now or was about to open um has another we have another jam room now in our st louis office and like that was going to be really cool because you could have like the st louis bullhorn band versus the boston band and um but uh it's it like every single time i would talk to employees about it like they just love it and even even if they're not into music. They just think it's fun and cool. And so,
0: yeah, there is that correlation, like lots and lots of the podcast guests that I've had, you know, play an instrument. Like it's just, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. So what else, um, outside of work, what else do you like to do? Um, you know, obviously it's, uh, interesting times these days, but what else do you like to do? Yeah. I started playing
1: hoops. Uh, that's a big one. Like, my son is uh 13 and loves playing basketball and um and i felt like he needed a buddy during covid you know sort of shooting alone outside and uh and so i I never played basketball before Uh, actually that's not true i played um once in seventh grade and i played the whole season i played like five minutes and i got one free throw (laughs) the whole season um but yeah, it was not very good, but I've kind of been learning, and YouTube is amazing. Like, if we had had YouTube growing up, like, just, oh, don't just stuff you can learn. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a very good basketball player, but my dribbling is like far better than it ever would have been. You know, growing up, like trying on my own. So and and shooting is much better. So it's uh, it's been that's been kind of humbling, but also really fun. So. Yeah, And that's how I've been able to pick up the guitar again, because it's
0: you watch YouTube and they'll show you how to play any song imaginable. And then the, like the different apps that are available now, like there's just such yeah. better tools.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, the the music, um, like the, the stuff you can do on a simple computer, like just with with um, like even GarageBand, like it's unbelievable recording. Like it's just I mean. It, the technology has completely transformed it. So it's pretty, it's, that's pretty cool. All
0: right. Thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and obviously the great success story and how Bullhorn became one of the, you know, anchor tech companies in the Boston tech scene. And of course all the other great advice. Yeah, thanks. It was fun.